Joshua, book of Joshua. Anyone got a Bible? A couple of you, great stuff. Why don't we open it up? Words are on the screen, but always good, I think, to dust off the pages, get into the scriptures. Joshua 22. If you have been part of the series through the year, we started it the week after Easter, actually, and we've on and off this year worked our way through the book of Joshua, the story of God leading his people into the land of Canaan, leading Israel in a conquest of the land of Canaan, uh, and then allocating the land out to the 12 tribes. I think we've got a slide that shows the different areas that were allocated to the different tribes. Uh, Some of you might not even know who these tribes are. They ended up being 13 different tribes because one got split in half, but they all got their area. They all got their land. It's kind of like the United States, you know, it's a united confederacy of Israel. It's the United States of Israel is how it worked. One nation, but, you know, the states had their own, the tribes had their own identity. They had their own brand. They had their own thing going on. Uh, but they were united. And this unity of 13 tribes, 13 quite different tribes, becomes very important in the chapter we're going to look at this morning. That even though they were many, they were still one tribe. And we're getting now to the end of Joshua Final three chapters, 22 is the chapter that we're in today. And in in chapter 22, we we meet these three particular tribes from Israel, three tribes that we met at the beginning of the story, the tribe of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh, three tribes. And if if you remember back to the very first chapter in Joshua, these tribes were actually allocated land outside the promised land. That's the land they wanted. They liked the look of it. They thought, yeah, Canaan's good, but we actually like this land over here, uh, east of the Jordan. And so they really had their land already, even before Israel went into the promised land. But in chapter 1, Joshua says to them, even though you three tribes have your land and, and you're all set, we still really need you guys to come and fight with us to get the rest of Canaan. Because we fight together, we win together, we're one nation, we're united, we need you guys to come and help us. And uh, Gad and Reuben and Manasseh in chapter 1 of Joshua, they say, yes, we are with you. We're going to come. We're going to be strong and courageous. We're going to do this thing together. And so the soldiers from those three tribes leave their wives and children, and they spend seven years over the other side of the Jordan, west of the Jordan, fighting alongside their brothers in this gruesome, bloody warfare campaign, even though it's not actually going to be the land they settle in. Now, seven years later... Finally, the land has rest from war. Finally, the dust has settled. Most of the Canaanites have been driven out. There's still a few pockets of resistance and the battle's going to have to go on. But by and large, Israel's got the land. So in chapter 22, Joshua turns to these three tribes in particular. These three tribes that have put in a huge effort because they've fought for land that they're not actually going to settle in. And he turns to them and gives them this huge blessing. And, and just commends them for their service, for their work, for fighting alongside their brothers. And then he, in a sense, releases them and says, you're free to go. You can head back over, cross the Jordan, go home to your families, go home to your wives and children and settle down in the land that, that is yours, east of the Jordan. And you can imagine, if you just try and picture, it's helpful to do with some of these biblical narratives because you don't get all the emotional details, but just try for a minute to picture what that scene would have been like. As the soldiers from these eastern tribes parted company 
with the soldiers from these western tribes. Seven years they'd fought side by side. Now, I have never fought in armed combat. You might be surprised to know. But if, I can imagine that the kind of bond that is formed between people who fight side by side in the armed services must be one of the closest bonds that you can, you can have. That kind of ethos where you will give your life for another, where you will not leave someone behind where you face life and death situations every day, the kind of connection that must have been formed between these men would have been profound. And now, seven years on, they're saying goodbye. Uh, And they will eventually see each other again. There's times when Israel will come together, but they live a long way apart. They're not just around the corner. This would have been an emotional farewell. There would have been handshakes, and they would have exchanged battle stories and you know showed each other their battle scars and tried to top each other's story and, 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 and patted each other on the back and given each other high fives and hongies and all of these things. And finally, the time has come. They've got to, they've got to go. And so the eastern tribes, with, with tears, uh, but with great memories, return to the east of the Jordan where their families await. Now, this is where the story gets interesting and actually quite bizarre, what happens next. If you look down at Joshua 22, verse 10, When they came, this is the eastern tribes going home now. When they came to Galiloth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, so they've gone back, they've come to the Jordan River, the boundary between Canaan and outside of Canaan. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. So they basically got all these stones We don't know what the altar was for at this stage. The author deliberately doesn't tell us. He's building some suspense. But they've built this huge structure. Put all these stones on top of each other. It must have been massive. It must have taken them a long time. They build a huge altar right there beside the Jordan River on their way home. And here is the clincher, verse 11. This is the shocker in the whole chapter. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan, at Geliloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, does that sound strange to anybody else? You know, in view of the story, they've just had this massive emotional departure. Brothers in arms, fellow countrymen, laying their lives down for each other. A couple of verses later, the entire brigade of Western Israel pulls up the battle lines to make war on the eastern tribes. This is just extreme. I mean, it brings Israel at this point. This is the closest this nation has been to civil war, all-out civil war. And they come agonizingly close to changing really the whole story of how Israel's history developed and fracturing the whole nation right here. The western tribes pull up the battle lines to make war against the eastern tribes. What has happened here? What has so got under their skin that they would be led to such a massive reaction? When when you peel back the layers, here's what's going on. You find this out a little bit later in the chapter, but let me just give you the story. The, The Israelites have made an assumption. Somehow word has got back to them that the western tribes have built this, that the eastern tribes have built this altar. And the Israelites assume, the Western tribes assume that this altar is a violation of the law, a violation of Deuteronomy, a violation of God's law. And and very clearly in Deuteronomy 12, God says there's only to be one altar, 
One altar where you worship, one altar where sacrifices are made. It's part of the unity thing of Israel. We all come together at one altar. And so Israel assumes these guys are setting up like a rival altar. This is a, this is a competitive altar. They're going to make their own sacrifices. They're going to do their own thing. This is the same as pagan worship. They're just going off after some other practice, some other god. Now, that's a completely mistaken assumption. As it turns out, that is totally not what's going on. But that is what these Western tribes think is happening. They make a mistaken assumption. It leads them to misunderstand the situation. They think that these Eastern tribes have fractured the unity of Israel. They've gone off after another god and built a rival altar. And it leads them to this massive, massive overreaction. And you have to say, by any account, this is an overreaction. This is the definition of overreaction. These guys just make, pull up the war horses. And this, it's interesting, this pattern that you see here. It's not too dissimilar from the way that things have still happened down through history. You, think, you can think of examples, I don't even have to name them in our own day, of conflicts generated because of misunderstandings. International conflicts generated because of a misunderstanding of what is going on on the other side. How many wars have been started because of a perceived threat that's not a real threat? How many battles have been fought because of a failure to understand where the other is coming from, to place yourself in the shoes of the other side and try to see it from their perspective? How many lives have been lost because of mistaken assumptions that are made that lead to misunderstanding of the situation, that lead to gross overreactions and inappropriate responses. And it's not just this international level. You boil this down, you break this right down. How many times do you and I do exactly this? How many times are we guilty? I am a shocker at this, personally. I am the king of overreactions. You know, Anna will tell you. I'm just like, make my mind up really quickly about a situation. Oh, this means this, that means that. This is a problem. This is lost. Can't find that. Can have to buy another one. You know, all the time. I do this and then I end up feeling utterly stupid because I'm wrong and I'm t- the evidence is there and next day it turns up and, oh, I'm an idiot, you know. Overreacting all the time. We, we make an assumption, leads to a misunderstanding and we react the wrong way. You and I do this and we do it in little funny inconsequential ways, but we do it in ways that also do harm to our relationships, don't we? We act in these kinds of ways and we model these patterns that are destructive in the way we treat each other. We, we don't get inside the shoes of one another. We don't get inside the experiences of each other and seek to see where they're coming from. And it fractures. It fractures marriages. It fractures friendships. It fractures co-worker relationships. And on it goes. Cultures, subcultures, nations. It all escalates. And this is the world we find ourselves in. A world where people move apart from one another and move towards disunity and fragmenting of relationships and fracturing of relationships. You see it everywhere. And into this world, here we are called to somehow model a different way. As followers of Jesus, somehow called to a different path, somehow called to be peacemakers, somehow called to be ministers, as Paul puts it, of reconciliation and find another way of relating and model some different patterns in the face of a world that just continually seems unable to hold relationships together. And thankfully what you find in Joshua 22 is that the whole story doesn't continue to go down and down and down. But in fact, having come to the brink of civil war, 
things start to pick up and we start to see a pattern here that can help us, that we can learn from. So let's walk through it. What happens is Israel pulls up the battle lines, but just before they launch into war, they send a delegation. And it's led by this guy called Phineas. And they come, they take leaders from all the representative tribes, and they take people, and they come to the eastern tribes. They don't just charge in and slaughter. Thank goodness. They don't just desecrate the land and the people. They stop, and they send a delegation, and they talk. They talk together. This is lesson number one. It's, it's simple stuff this morning. They talk. They communicate. And this principle, right, just talking together, I think is utterly foundational for cementing and keeping together relationships. It is always a disappointment to me, to be honest, when I hear of someone or some people who are unhappy with something, uh, maybe something I've done, something I've said, mistake I've made, and... Uh, and you kind of hear this second, third, fourth, fifth hand. And it's gone around various people and they've been unhappy, but they haven't talked to me. They've talked to someone else. Uh, and then it eventually comes back. It's, you, I just always have that feeling of, you know, what, what is it? Is there something about me? Am I inaccessible? Am I unapproachable? Can we not just sit down and talk about this? Now, I know you feel the same way. And there's so much value in just being present with each other. There is so much scope for misunderstanding when we, when we refuse to get eyeball to eyeball and talk it through. And when we are in these conflict situations, interpersonal situations, as much as bigger group culture stuff, just interpersonal situations, the value of getting those eyeballs in front of you and just having the conversation can really disarm and de-escalate the situation. Don't use, don't use texting to do it. Texting is fine, it has its place, but not in conflict situations, not to resolve disputes, right? I've seen marriages try to repair themselves by a text. It is ridiculous. Uh, not by email. Email's good too, but it, as soon as you feel that strain, you know how this happens. There's an email conversation going on, and then that, that one just sounded a bit funny. That one, you know, there's, suddenly there's a bit of tension in the equation. And I've read, I've had emails sent to me by people, and I've, I've read this, and I think this person actually wants to kill me. You know, like this person may already may already have a hit on me because I am not sure what this is saying. But then I will sit down with them face to face, and they're fine. That it was just that was just how they email, or this is just how they express themselves. But I think you've got to be so careful because so much I don't know a huge percentage of our communication is not the words you say. It is your intonation, it is your body language, it is how you say it, and email takes all that away. You don't have it. All you have is the bald words on the screen, so be careful. Use email etiquette, but as soon as the conflict starts to get there, and as soon as there's a bit of tension, get face-to-face. Drink some coffee or some tea, and just recover the art of being face-to-face with one another. I know it's a bit awkward, I know... You know, we talked about Gen Y last week, and they're not a really face-to-face generation. It's all cyber community and social networking sites. But let's be a people who commit together to be face-to-face, especially when stuff goes wrong. Be prepared to sit down with one another. There's a guy a few years ago I had a massive fallout with, and we've never been able to repair it because he doesn't want to be face-to-face. He doesn't want to sit down. And so we've never had that conversation. We've never been able to be in that space. 
This is so vitally important. Bite your tongue, grit your teeth, and make the appointment. Make the next email the one that says, when can we meet? And here's what happens when this delegation of Israelites come and meet this, this delegation of eastern tribes. You see in the words they say a couple of principles at work which are so helpful to keep in mind. In the first instance, they speak with truth. You look at what they say in, in verse 16. This is pretty hard stuff. They say, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him? Now, this is pretty gutsy stuff, especially given that they have totally misunderstood the situation. Like that, we're going to figure that out in a few verses' time. But they, they're, they're completely on the wrong page. But at least they are being truthful about how they see it. This is, where I, this is how I understand the situation. This is where I'm coming from. It's being open enough to be truthful. Married couples, if there's something going on in your relationship and you're not talking about it and you're not being truthful about it, but you're just shirking the issue and hoping it'll go away, it is a disaster waiting to happen. The longer you leave it, the longer you put it off, the longer you don't speak truthfully about that issue and have the conversation and bring it up, the longer your marriage is going to keep going down and down and downhill. Engaged couples, if there are issues, if there is stuff, that needs to be said, if there is some truth that needs to be spoken and you're hoping, oh, let's just get married and it's all going to sort itself out. Wrong move. Bad assumption. Truth needs to be injected into those conversations. Stuff needs to be brought from the darkness into the light. It's the same way that we deal with addictions. We bring them out of the darkness into the light. We find people that we can talk to about our stuff because bringing it into the light exposes it and it robs it of its power. When you start speaking truthfully, you disarm whatever is going on and you start to rob it of its power and you start to be able to bring some healing into the situation. But it takes us, and I know it's a bit countercultural because Kiwis aren't particularly good at this, us Kiwis, but it takes us being open enough to speak the truth. Here's how I'm feeling. Here's how I see it. Here's the issue. Learn, is there a person that you need today, this week, to speak a bit of truth to? But as you do, remember the second step. Because the Israelites don't just speak with truth, they speak with grace. And this to me is the, is the most remarkable part of the story. You look at verse 19. They say, if the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. Do you hear what they're saying? They're not even on the same page. They misunderstand the situation. They've got the wrong end of the stick. But listen to the heart behind what they're saying. They're, saying they're trying to figure out what the issue is. Look, if the issue is that you've built this altar because you think somehow your land's inferior and it needs to be cleansed and it needs some special thing and it's defiled, what do they say? They don't just say, tear down the altar. They don't just say, get rid of this thing and grow up. They say, come over to our land and we will share our land with you. If the issue is you think your land's defiled, let us move over and we'll make space for you. Now you think about this because all of the, it's not like they just had tons and tons of land. All the cities are allocated. All the tribes have their territory. All people have been, I mean, there's, there's tons and tons of land, but there's tons and tons of people. It's full. 
And yet here is Joshua and the Israelites saying to their fellow countrymen, if you don't like your land and it's going to cause unity between us, let us make room for you. We'll be the one to shove over. You got a problem over there? We'll squeeze up. We will move in together. We will build high-rise apartments. We'll do whatever we need to do to accommodate. Can you hear the spirit of what's going on here? This is not standing on your rights. This is not drawing the hard line and just calling people to step up. This is showing unbelievable grace and humility. In the midst of those conflicts, in the midst of those difficult conversations, it is about saying, how can I make space for you? How can I model myself on on Jesus himself, who laid his life down for me, even when the problem was mine, not his? How can I make concession? How can I make accommodation? How can I serve you in the midst of this? We're so big on just my rights. I got the truth. I'm in the right. I'm in the clear. And we're all about this pride and this rock-hard kind of disposition that needs, friends, it needs to be broken. We need to get past that and we need to learn to lower ourselves that other people can be elevated. We need to learn to be humble. We need to learn... I'll take the dying end of the equation if it means you take the rising. I'll have less if it means... doesn't mean being a doormat. There's still the truth that needs to be spoken. And this is the, the art of discerning how these things work together. It's different in every situation. But to take grace into it, and in those conflicts and in those relationships that you have right now that are strained, look for a way to serve that person. Look for a way to make sure they know you love them and you're committed to them, you're not just in this to win, you're in this to reconcile. The goal is not winning. The goal is unity. The goal is bringing back what has been torn apart. Find a way to serve them. Find a way to lower yourself and elevate them. It's a very humbling thing to do, and it gets right to the heart of our stubborn, selfish pride, doesn't it? And you can feel it. Those of you that are thinking of situations now, you're like, I shouldn't have to do that. It's unjust. You know, we're left with a sense of injustice because they don't deserve it and it won't be reciprocated. Think of Jesus. That was taken care of on the cross. And no matter what we reciprocate and no matter how unjust we might be, God has lavishly poured his self out for us. Calls us to do the same. It's a model of relationships, laying our lives down in practical ways. In the conversation, just reaffirm your love for them. Just reaffirm your commitment to the relationship in the midst of that conflict. This is the grace, grace and truth. And then these tribes reply, these eastern tribes, after the western tribes have now had a go at them and said, we think this is crazy, what you're doing with this altar, how could you possibly rebel against the Lord? Here comes the big aha moment. The eastern tribes reply, And they say uh, in verse 21, I won't won't read the whole story to you, but they basically say, look, this is not about us building a rival altar. Our concern was that in generations to come, uh, your kids are going to be playing with our kids in the Jordan River and your kids are going to say to our kids, you guys don't live in the promised land, you live over the river. You're not part of us. You guys don't have any share in the promise. You don't really follow God. You're not part of the promised land. We didn't want that to happen. We wanted something that testified to the fact even though we live outside of the promised land, we're just as much part of the deal, we're just as much part of Israel, and we're just as much recipients of the blessing. So we built this altar that actually, Western tribes, is a sign of our unity. We're all one, not our disunity. 
And then Phineas and the other guys say, oh, that's interesting. We feel a bit stupid now. That's the original Hebrew text. But um, you know, it shows you doesn't, there's always, always, always another side to the story. Always. I remember a few years ago, Anna and I met with a woman who uh, had just, just been separated from her husband. And we sat down with her in a park and she poured out her heart to us. And when she was done, honestly, we came away feeling like that guy. That guy is a creep. That guy is a no-hoper. That guy is no good. He, it's all on him. It's his fault. This marriage is over because of him. And we've just got to help and protect this poor victim woman. And then I met with him. And, oh, there's another whole site. And, oh, she did this and that. And Yeah, I mean, it was awful to watch because they're just having a go at each other. But you realize there is a whole other side to this story. And certain things that she had done, he'd perceived one way, but she'd just been doing it to try and get attention. Certain things he'd said, she'd perceived it as harsh and demeaning, he'd just been trying to be honest, and they were utterly missing each other on totally different wavelengths. They weren't communicating at all. And there was an entirely other side to the story. If we had jumped to conclusions, as I am prone to do, and, and heaven forbid, acted in some way based purely on this first story we heard, we'd have been in big trouble. Guys, there is always another side to the story. Always. And sometimes, here's the thing, you're not going to know it, and you won't get to know it. It's times in the church. You might hear of situations, hear of things, and you make conclusions, but just, if I can urge you to remember, there is always, 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 another side to the story. As my granddad used to say, judge when you've got one more fact. Judge when you've got... It's cheesy, I know, but I thought it was quite good. I've tried to keep it with me. Judge when you've got one more fact. Just one more, and then just... In other words, don't judge. In other words, just be very careful about making assumptions about how you see this situation or that one until you've got all the information, which most of the time you never will. So hold it lightly. There's always another side to the story. And so you get to the end of this conflict, and the eastern tribes have explained themselves... And interestingly, the Western tribes, I mean, you could expect them to be quite embarrassed about this. They've just pulled all their soldiers up to make war, and they've, they've ended up looking a bit sheepish. But toward the end of the account, what you find is that Phineas and the rest of the Israelites, they are, as the text says, they are pleased. Because they went into it, not with the goal of winning, but of reconciling. And they've now heard the truth, and they've now been met with grace, and the fact that Israel is reunited, that's the goal. It's not we made a point and we want this result. It's we're back together. That's the goal. There's harmony again. There's unity again. So they are pleased. Often what happens with us is that when we are proved to be wrong and when the evidence really comes to light and we actually realize, oh, I overreacted, that was a bit dumb, instinctively that hurts our pride, doesn't it? feels a bit damaging. So we resort to either fight or flight. Those are the two instinctive responses. Either we flee, we withdraw because we're embarrassed, or, you know, some of you are smiling because you do this, you fight and you find something else. All right, all right, all right. But what about, but you do this, you know? And, you know, we found out over here, I've got, I'm in a corner over here, I can't win this one, but there's this other thing. There's this thing five years ago you did. You know, we're going back to that now, you know? And you just try and get yourself out of, you know, you just, you tactical, arguing. And on we go, because we just can't get to the point very easily of just saying, you know, I was, okay, I was wrong. But if I can own that, and now we understand each other and can be reconciled through that, isn't that the goal? Isn't that 
what should ultimately lead us to say, fantastic, I don't need to fight, I don't need to flee, let's be reconciled. Let's not be about protecting my silly little ego. Put that aside, let's just be together and celebrate that we have a way now forward to be reconciled. What you see here are these two principles, grace and truth. Grace and truth, all the time. In a conflict situation, biggest internal conflict within Israel in the whole book. And how is it resolved? Grace and truth. The Israelites show truth, they speak truthfully, they speak openly, but there's immeasurable grace. Huge grace towards their brothers. The eastern tribes speak truthfully, they defend themselves. It's right to do that, but with grace. They don't take offence that they've been falsely accused. They don't say, well, you know, this is, how, how could you possibly overreact like this? They just say, hey, this is the situation. And grace and truth finally bring about that reconciliation. I couldn't help as I prepared all this. You th- I, I, as I had these themes rattling around in my mind, grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth, John 1.14. Talking of Jesus, John says, he came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's interesting, isn't it? That these themes in Joshua, grace and truth, they finally weave their way to Jesus the one who embodies grace and truth. Not just in his dealings with people, although he did, and you can see time and time again how this pattern in Joshua is evidenced in Jesus. Incredible grace, but incredible truth. But most supremely at the cross, which is really the ultimate demonstration of both grace and truth. The cross speaks truth about your sin and mine. It speaks that word of truth, which is quite harsh, hard to hear, because it tells us that we haven't got it all together. It tells us that we've got a huge problem of sin. It tells us, it speaks of our depravity. It places us in a pit. Cross speaks truth, but it speaks incredible grace. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks freedom. It speaks a word that says, no matter where you've gone, doesn't matter what yesterday was like, doesn't matter how long this cycle's been going on, you can be free. You can find release. You can find healing from that stuff. You can be, you can experience new life. And it can start now. The cross speaks grace. It speaks an incredibly profound word of grace. Because the one on the cross was full of grace and full of truth. And he's poured out his spirit on us and he's called us as those who follow Jesus to embody grace and truth in our dealings with one another. And you might even think of particular people this morning who this week you need to make a phone call, you need to send an email, maybe a text, but keep it short, just arrange the meeting but a particular person, because this has to become real. It has to drill down to the practicalities of our life where we become people who relate to each other in a different way from that which the world knows. People of grace and truth, after the one that we love, who himself was grace and truth. Some of you might have heard of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. It was set up after the abolition of apartheid. And it gave... Victims of gross human rights violations, an opportunity to give testimony. It brought offenders and gave them the opportunity to speak, and it brought victims and offenders essentially together. And Some of the accounts were horrific. Philip Yancey tells of one case that came before this commission where a policeman, South African policeman named Vanderbrock, talked of how he and his fellow officers had gone to one family home and taken an 18-year-old youth and burned her, burned her alive. And then went back eight years later and took the father and burned him alive and made the mother watch. These atrocities. And the widow was there 
in the court that day, hearing all this, and the judge turned to her and asked her if she wanted to speak. And she said, I'd like Mr. Vanderbrook to go to the place where my husband was killed and gather up the dust so that I can give him a decent burial. And Mr. Vanderbrook agreed. And then she continued with this further request. She said, Mr. Vanderbrock took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like to embrace him so that he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began singing Amazing Grace as this elderly woman made her way down to the witness stand. But Vanderbrock didn't hear it because he'd fainted, overwhelmed. You see, when the world sees real reconciliation, when they see grace and truth, they sit up and notice. When the world sees this pattern, grace and truth, people coming together, forgiveness and reconciliation, the world falls silent before it because it doesn't know what's going on and it sees that it is from somewhere else. And as you and I model this, in the smallest of ways, grace and truth, we become a massive signpost pointing people to Jesus, the one who embodied grace and truth. Because it was him who said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Father, those are the kind of people that we want to be. And God, it's easy to talk about, but it's hard to do. You know that. And I just pray for the situations even now that are swirling in our minds. Lord, the people that we find difficult, the situations of conflict, Holy Spirit, would you release grace and truth into each of those situations? And Father, give us the courage to act. Give us the courage to know when that word of grace needs to be spoken and when that word of truth needs to be spoken. Father, would you shape us and give us enough humility in and of ourselves and enough security in you that we don't have to hold on to ego anymore, we don't have to stand on our rights anymore because we gave all that up at the cross. Father, we've declared ourselves unworthy. We know that we are sinners who have been saved purely and only and solely by your lavish grace upon us. And so from that position of humility, we just want to reach out and pursue reconciliation with others. We want to be ministers, ambassadors of reconciliation in a world torn apart at every level of relationship. We want to work on bringing others back together and helping and doing what we can to restore relationships that we're in, that have been lost. Father, we know we can only do so much. We can only act as we can act. And there's a lot that we need to leave with you. But we commit today, we covenant today as your people. We will be people of grace and truth. And we'll do it humbly, and at times we'll do it boldly. But we'll pursue these things because it's part of knowing you, and it's part of becoming like you, and it's who you have been to us. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.